gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And we're going to do an episode today. We probably should have done a long time ago. And as we were preparing, I was thinking, how did we not do this before? But we're going to talk about women of the Reformation, especially with Reformation Day coming up. And we're going to do kind of a summary and overview. There's so much more information than um, what we'll talk about. And we have we have links. So there's free articles out there for for every one of the women that we highlight. And then there are also a couple of books, and I will link those. Uh, one person who's done a lot of a lot of writing on different women in church history is Simonetta Carr. We've had her on the podcast before. And we do have a couple from her and, and then some from some other people. And because I've been reading all these things this week a lot, there's so many people out there. There's the ones we'll talk about that you you will have heard of, like um, John Calvin's wife and Martin Luther's wife, but there's so many more. And one of the things when you read is there, there were a lot of nuns that uh, were learning Martin Luther's works and were influential in the Reformation. We don't talk about them very much, but there is some stuff out there, even some writing from some of the women of the Reformation. So, um, I encourage doing a deep dive into learning about some of these women. They just, some of them led remarkable, sometimes very difficult lives. Um, one of the things Rachel and I have seen in reading about this too, is that it, it was a sacrifice and potentially dangerous for some of these women to, especially the nuns to it. Well, some of them escaped the convent and things like that. And they knew that this was a dangerous thing to do, but they they believe so strongly in the true gospel. So let's start with Katerina von Bora Luther, wife of Martin Luther. Maybe you can start and talk a little bit about her, Rachel. Sure. Uh, one of the things I wanted to add that um, one of the we should link to it to the audiobook that we we found. Yes. Uh, in the intro, it talked about uh, about women in the Reformation and about how, uh, because of the Reformation and the the views about you know the priesthood of believers and about the um, individual importance uh, of education and being able to read your scriptures and being able to understand what it teaches, uh, it it elevated um, the importance of teaching women. Uh, so it was important that not just that boys and, and men learn to read and to be able to do scholarly work, but that women learn too. And so it's part of what you see with the Reformation is uh, women who are learning and are writing about theology and talking about theology, and sometimes to um, 
with a lot of controversy around that, uh, which we'll talk about. But um, it it really is interesting to see how it changed um, life for the better uh, in the ways. And of course, obviously, if you know your history, things didn't improve um, completely. Things didn't change. Like you know, things were still the way they were uh, for women for a long time. But um, it was a change, and it was an improvement. And uh, so one of the highlights when you, when you read through a lot of these women uh, and their, their stories, uh, education and their interest in theology, these show up a lot. And I, I know I've told you before, I um, heard a talk from a feminist woman who really thought that the Reformation was a turning point for women, mm-hmm. even though there was, you know, um, still some things that needed to be changed. She really thought it was a turning point. So, starting with a couple of the women who are uh, probably more well-known, Katerina von Bora, who's Martin Luther's wife, Uh, the parts that we know about her early life, she was uh, a nun. She was, I think, first in a Benedictine and then a Cistercian monastery. And like many other of the the women that we're going to talk about, she was dissatisfied with what she was learning. Uh, she was um, uh, like Martin Luther and his struggles in, in trying to, to figure out about assurance and how he can know he was saved and what he needed to do to be saved and, and the freedom that he found in the gospel and salvation by faith alone. Um, many others that we're going to see had the same kind of struggle over scriptures and what they were learning and, So, um, in 1523, uh, Katie Von Bora and a number of her friends um, got in touch with Luther and asked for help in escaping. And as uh, Colleen mentioned, this was very dangerous to do. Apparently, at the time, anyone who was um, abandoned, their vows could be tortured and imprisoned. So, Luther um, got in touch with a merchant who helped smuggle them out of the monastery. Uh, one of the famous stories, whether it's true or not, uh, is that they were, um, that they escaped in barrels, but um, it's a great story, whether or not it's true. Uh, I grew up in Lutheran schools. And so everybody, all the kids know Lutheran kids know the school, the story of uh, Catherine or Katerina escaping in the barrel. So when they arrived there in Wittenberg, Luther wanted first to return the women to their families, but their families didn't take them back because, you know, that would get them in trouble with the uh, Catholic church. And so then he decides to try to find husbands for them. And Katerina just didn't find many of the, the possible men acceptable. And then she finally told him, she's like, look, I'm willing to marry either this guy is a friend of Luther or Luther. And after, after a little time, Luther finally agreed, and they were married and moved into um, a former Augustinian monastery called the Black Cloister. And she took over the management of the holdings. Um, she was, you know, both a, a housewife, but also, if you understand how, um, how the family economies worked at the time, she was responsible for uh, managing, you know, the the property and the brewery and the livestock. And, you know, she was, you know, really the economic manager of their home. And you know, if you read Luther's um, writings about his wife, he loved her dearly. He respected her and uh, thought very highly of her opinions and her um her abilities. Uh, they hosted families, uh, students in their home a lot, and there were a lot of discussions uh, throughout the, their married life and with all these people and the theologians coming in and out um, that she was also part of. Um, they had six children and also adopted some others, so they have quite a full life. Um, one of my favorite stories uh, is if you know much about Luther, you know that he struggled uh, a lot with depression and he had been morose and depressed for quite a while. And uh, the story goes that Katarina came down 
dressed in uh, mourning clothes, like all black. And Luther looked at her and said, well, who died? What are you, what are you mourning? She says, well, obviously God's dead because if you know, you're so, you're so down and things are so horrible that it must be that God's no longer in charge. And it, it was just the right amount of, uh, I guess, sarcastic wit to uh, get him to think about how he was living and behaving and encouraged him to, to remember that God was still in charge uh, even though things were tough. Yeah, you really get the idea with Katerina and Luther that they were companions. Mm-hmm. Um, some of his letters are fun to read the way he speaks about her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was his, his partner in life. And Luther Luther has some pretty spicy stuff in some, some letters that he's written. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing I wanted to mention is if you read stories about some of these nuns that uh, ended up leaving the monastery, some of them become nuns extremely young, mm-hmm. very, very young. I'm not sure what how old she was, but um, I think it was fairly young. That wasn't uncommon. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to get to one, one towards the end, a woman that was married at 14 years old. Mm-hmm. So Also not uncommon. Right, exactly. It was a very, very different time. And like I said before, we're going to put links because there's so much more. We're just doing a light overview to kind of feature some of these women. And there's actually quite a bit of information out there. Um, mm-hmm. Some some of the people, and I've, I've talked to Simonetta where it's a little bit more work. Um, I'm going to apologize to our listeners that... My dog is very noisy, so. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to put a fair amount of resources in there. I know that for one thing that Simonetta said is for some of these women, um, the information hasn't necessarily been translated in English, so that can make it more complicated to learn stuff. But w- one of the things I've enjoyed doing is reading um, a lot of the the letters that are out there, whatever you can find. Uh, I've Several years ago, read a bunch of Luther's and and Calvin's letters. So, speaking of Calvin, we can talk about Idolette Calvin, who was John Calvin's wife. I'm sure most people are familiar with her somewhat. And she was married before she was married to Calvin to a man named Jean Storder. And I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce some of the things that we say today. So, I apologize for that. And they were refugees in Strasbourg, and they were Anabaptists. And this Anabaptists in, endured a lot of persecution back in that time. So they they had gone to Strasbourg, fleeing the persecution for their Anabaptist beliefs. Um, they didn't remain Anabaptists. We'll talk about that later. And. Anabaptists were considered very radical. So, if you think about, there was so much going on during this time of of the Reformation. So, they rejected not only Roman Catholicism, but also uh, the Reformers as well. They were kind of in their own camp, but eventually left the Anabaptists and joined John Calvin's church. So, they grew in their love of the scriptures and you know, were learning and they were listening to Calvin and Idolette actually read the Institutes. That's, that's kind of amazing if you think mm-hmm. think about it at that time. One of the things, a lot of these women were very well studied. They were studying the scriptures and, and other works, um, not Idolette, but some of the others, the nuns, a lot of the nuns would get a hold of Martin Luther's works and uh, and often for like the nuns, a lot of them struggled with assurance because when you have this faith of works, you know, you never feel secure. So that kind of ate up Luther's works. So Idolette also attended uh, Calvin's Bible studies and Calvin was friends with the two of them, uh, but then Jean died. And so a lot of times I think in that period of time, Rachel, you probably know, better. But when a woman's husband died, a lot of times they found a new husband for her, I think was pretty common. 
It is pretty common. Um, it, it would have been both an economic and just a practical matter of, of protection um, you know, that you know, then she wouldn't be uh, left alone or uh, trying to provide for children on her own. Yeah. And sometime uh, we won't get into it now, but sometimes it's, it's interesting to read kind of Calvin's history on considering mm-hmm. some women for marriage. He was kind of very picky and <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure at some point he thought he was not going to actually um, marry, mm-hmm. but so she had no way to support herself and they had two children. And so you've probably heard of Martin Booser suggested that Calvin marry her. And there, Theodore Beza even has some writings where he um, describes Idolette as a serious-minded woman of good character. That's quite a compliment. And it, it wasn't actually very long. I'm not exactly sure the, the time frame that they, they called William Farrell to, to come and perform a wedding ceremony. Much like uh, Luther and Katerina, Calvin and, and Adelette were, um, were companions in life. They um, found uh, comfort and encouragement in each other. Um, sadly, uh, their, their life together was um, full of a lot of, of pain and sorrow. They, they lost, um, I think, three children. Uh, they, they had no surviving children. There was a, a premature birth of their firstborn, and he died. Um, they had a daughter who died um, as an infant, and then a stillbirth. And in addition to you know, the, the pain of losing children, they, were, um, they suffered a lot because of the gossip uh, that the idea was that God was punishing them uh, because her first marriage was um, wasn't in the church in the Catholic Church because it was part of the Anabaptist uh, background, and so you know then you know, she's this um, immoral woman and she's had children out of wedlock and and so that's why um, why she and Calvin couldn't have children. But um, what I find fascinating about it is Calvin talked about finding comfort knowing that he had uh, sons throughout the Christian world uh, and spiritual sons, which I think is a, a lovely thing to think about, um, especially for, for the many of us who have struggled with infertility, um, you know, that as much as we have longed for children, you know, whether or not we, we give birth and, and raise our, our biological children or raise adopted children or have um, an impact on other families and other lives and people that become our spiritual sons and daughters or brothers and sisters. Um, I think it's interesting to see that, you know, even when, in Calvin's life, that was a, an aspect of his, his relationship with others. Adelette died, I think they were married about nine years. Calvin said that or he wrote about his wife's death. And he says, truly mine is no common source of grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one who, had it been so ordered, would not have been the willing share of my indulgence, but even of my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. But from her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the entire course of her illness. She was more anxious about her children than herself. Um, so again, high praise and uh, evidence of much love and and friendship between them. And I think that when I mean going through the loss of three children, oh my goodness, yes, um, together mm-hmm. that there is. I mean, I'm sure many of our listeners know when you go through um, heartbreak with somebody and you lean on each other, and um, there's a lot of bonding that happens, I think, through that. And and I think that there were times if you read Calvin through like the loss of the children that he really it was it was a struggle. I mean, I I can't imagine going through that, you know, one right after another. Another Katerina, Katerina 
Schutzel. No idea if I'm saying that right. Feel free to correct me, Rachel. I think that's right. Okay. Uh, some of these. German's know, not my strong suit. Right. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Um, so she was, she was um, devout and, and spiritually anxious. You actually see, like the more I read about some of them, some of them were kind of spiritually anxious, good mm-hmm. way to. And she devout in that she wanted to do everything. Again, when you have this faith that tells you, you must do all these things and you're devout, you're going to devote yourself to these good works, to the sacraments and, and such things. And she actually read the Bible in German. This was uncommon. The clergy did not encourage it, but she could still find no assurance for her salvation. And it's interesting to me how many of the stories kind of parallel, mm-hmm. you know, some of what Luther went through and then, you know, finally hearing the gospel. Uh, and like is common in so many stories, she heard the teachings of Martin Luther and, and that was uh, spread in, in Strasbourg. This is about 1521, 1522. If you kind of have an idea of when some of the uh, events that were happening in the reformation. So she learned these things from someone named Matthew Zell, and she was finally convinced that she was saved by faith, by grace, trusting in Christ, and not of her own works. And it's so amazing to me. Can you imagine just struggling, struggling, thinking, I can't be good enough for the, for the Lord? You read that with Luther, and then finally understanding the just shall live by faith. And what a beautiful Thing that must have been. Well, you know, it mirrors what we hear from a lot of women who contact us um, through the podcast and through the Facebook group about having struggled with assurance, having struggled to understand how they were saved and trying to do enough good works to be right with God and then coming to understand um, salvation by faith alone and trusting in Christ and resting in Christ's work. Um, and the freedom that they feel and the relief that they feel. Uh, I, I was very encouraged to see um, the similarities in these women's stories and in the women that we talked to today. Uh, and that you know, the gospel is, is still that hope and that fresh uh, promise of, of salvation and that hope that we have in rest in Christ. And one thing too, is that even though, you know, we're all Protestants. There, there are still teachers, um, maybe denominations, that while they say justification by faith alone, they're using different definitions, and mm-hmm. there's a wrong emphasis on what works does. And we've talked about some of those examples before in this podcast. So, one of the things that that changed in her life is that because she was no longer felt like she had to earn God's approval, she wanted to tell everyone else about this. And so she considered herself to be a fisherman. She was going to tell other people how to be saved um, through what she had learned from Luther and Zell. And she would write and she would express this to others so that people would know. Uh, and that's it's just a beautiful picture that those of us, any of us who've been through uh, that kind of uh, awakening in our life. You want other people to know the good news that you have. And the other interesting thing about her life is that she was um, among the first in in the area to marry a priest. She married Matthew Zell, and he was, you know, one of these um, uh, Protestant heretics uh, that the, the church called them at the time. And getting married um, led to a whole set of scandalousness and rumors about them because, you know, priests and the Catholic Church were not supposed to marry. And so she wrote a defense to his bishop or to the bishop in Strasbourg defending the right of marriage, uh, clergy to marry uh, on the basis of scripture. And Isn't that amazing? Real yes. Quick, this woman writes this, they, they call them sometimes apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, a defense of this. I, I just think it's really a neat story. Yes. And it was a biblical argument written by a lay woman uh, to the church speaking publicly. Um, 
And again, you know, like we've seen with the others, um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, was an emphasis about marriage uh, coming out of the Reformation or through the Reformation is marriage as uh, companions, as companionate marriage. So it's not merely for procreation. It's not merely for, well, if you can't, if you just can't be celibate, then you should get married. But it was for um, for friendship and for support of each other. So Matthew Zell considered her a partner in, in the faith. He uh, called her his wedded companion, his assistant, uh, mother of the afflicted. And uh, she became known eventually as a church mother. That was her, her title uh, as far as what she considered herself to be. Um, but like many other women who've written um, and spoken publicly about controversial matters, uh, she became considered a disturber of the peace of the church. Um, this is what the church called her. And so she replied and she wrote a letter to the whole city. Uh, and I love this quote. She says, do you call this disturbing the peace that instead of spending my time in frivolous amusements, I have visited the plague infested and carried out the dead. I have visited those in prison under sentence of death. Often for three days and nights, I've neither eaten nor slept. I have never mounted the pulpit, but I have done more than any minister in visiting those in ministry. Is this disturbing the peace of the church? And I just found that really, really, really fascinating. Um, just the, what I thought was really fascinating is, you know, the same themes that women who are speaking and writing um, in in ways that are God honoring, in ways that are pointing people to scriptures and to the gospel, and in ways that are appropriate, um, are are being uh, uh, slandered or being um, called disturbers of the church, are being. Uh, and we'll see with our next uh, next woman being excommunicated, um, and it's just it, it's it's really interesting to see uh, all the tactics that are used. To, to silence the gospel. Uh, Rachel, it, it made me think when I was reading about this of some of even what you've been through and Amy Bird that, um, you know, standing up for what you believe is truth, not being met with some difficult things. Yeah. Badly true for so many, um, many of us who have been treated that way. Um, so towards the end of, of her life, she carried on, uh, taking care of her family as well as helping the needy and, um, working to reform, um, the care for the poor and the sick. And she continued to teach and, uh, encourage others. In, in reading Luther's letters, when I did that a few years ago, of course, I can't remember that much about it, but one of the things that struck me is he, he had some female friends, women that he wrote letters to. Uh, so one of the women that was a friend of Luther, her name was Argula von Grumbach. And so this is a woman that um, was a friend of Luther's. And Luther knew that she had suffered for the sake of the gospel. And really, all of these people really did suffer for the sake of the gospel. Mm -hmm. they, they sacrificed comfort and many things for the sake of the gospel. And she had been through abuse and threats and loss of, of status. And she had four little children dependent on her and had taken a lot of risks. I mean, it, mm -hmm. if you read more of these stories, it's, it's actually quite remarkable the things that that they went through um she challenged theologians at um and i won't say this right but ingolstadt university in bavaria to a public debate with her in german that's pretty remarkable right there too mm -hmm. um about the legit legitimacy of their of their behavior in persecuting a young student. So th this was unheard of. And you can imagine, again, especially if you think about, e even though there was some changes of how women were viewed uh, because of the Reformation, there was still a lot uh, 
Rachel, you would probably know even more than me in, in your study of history, how kind of unheard of this would would be. Yeah, it wasn't done. Um, not just she was a, a lay woman, so she didn't have the education or standing in the, in the universities. But um, as a woman in general, that she just was not, they did not expect um, any kind of, of pushback that way. What's interesting is the reason that she was so upset and that she was challenging them is that they had arrested this young student because uh, he he was Protestant, that he was holding to Luther's views, and they had threatened uh, to kill him, to have him executed for them. And she wrote a um, uh, she wrote a letter, and her letter was then published, used in the printing press, and sent out uh, all over Germany. And what she wrote was, uh, nowhere in the Bible do I find that Christ or his apostles or his prophets put people in prison, burnt or murdered them. How in God's name can you and your university expect to prevail when you deploy such foolish violence against the word of God? And she defended her right to speak uh, as a woman that she said that through scripture, you could see that uh, the Holy Spirit had moved women uh, to speak out and that she was standing in that tradition. And uh, of course, you know, com- one of the common uh, dismissals of women in, in at the time and today as well is that women are too emotional to discuss theology well. So she responded uh, using First Corinthians and said that, so didn't Paul say that every member of the church is a temple of the Lord? So aren't we all capable of, of discussing theology? And shouldn't we all be capable? Um, she had a great knowledge and mastery of scripture. And uh, many of her writings were published. Uh, and she was filled with uh, quotations uh, from scripture, pulling together um, passages and to discuss them in a way that's uh, that was quite remarkable, um, not just at her time, but it's quite remarkable. Um, Things I wanted to mention is how significant the printing press was during this time and um, in being able to spread some of these writings. Had they not had the printing press, it may have been a different situation, but the Lord really used that. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, her writing and her um, uh, how put, her challenging of the theologians there um, at the university, uh, it got people mad at her, uh, the people at the university, the, the higher-ups in the Catholic Church, the leaders, the civil leaders, and... Uh, People were upset with her. Uh, her. Her critics complained to her husband that he couldn't control her. And he ended up losing his job because he was working for uh, the Bavarian Dukes at the time. So, um, as Colleen mentioned, you can see that she was in contact with Luther and others uh, who were well-known among the reformers. Uh, she was at various meetings. Uh, she was at the Diet of Augsburg, where she uh, talked to the princes and tried to encourage them to stand for the faith. And interesting, I thought this was very interesting. She worked to heal the divide between um, Luther and Zwingli over the Lord's Supper, um, which I, I really did. I thought it was very interesting that she was part of trying to, to mend that rift. Um, and she was uh, also an encouragement to uh, other lay members of the church around her in to read scripture and to um, to speak out about the faith. And apparently, there are a number of little little churches in the villages around where she lived that um, have uh, their roots traced back to to her. And I, I love this quote from her too. She said, with Paul, I say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of salvation to those who believe. What I have written to you is no woman's chit-chat, but the word of God. 
That is such a good quote, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. One of the things that always is just so fascinating is how much these women studied the word of God. And they saw that, wait, some of these practices in the church are not in the Bible. You know, there's probably a reason why the church leaders did not want people reading the Bible. Absolutely. One of the ones that we've talked so far about uh, women that were in Germany, and that was certainly one of the large uh, portions of of the the Reformation uh, starting there with Luther. Uh, But there were also a number of uh, Protestant reformers in France. Uh, There were many of them were known as Huguenot. So, one woman I'm going to talk about is Susanna Rocher, and her married name is Susanna Rocher Michaud. Uh, And she's known, uh, the story is the little nightcap. So, in the 1600s, the French king, Louis XIV, was persecuting the the Protestant Christians, the Huguenots. Um, Before Louis XIV, the Huguenots had been allowed to live and worship with decent freedom, but um, the new king hated them. He revoked the Edict of Nantes that would protected them. And so, many of the Huguenot families began to leave France, uh, and it was not easy to do so. Um, and so, the Rocher family had been able to get two of their older daughters to Amsterdam, and the Reformed Church in Holland was helping families escape. So, once the older, older daughters were safe, they wrote back to their father and said to send them the little nightcap that they had left behind, and that was their sister, Susanna. And so, the story goes that to get her out of France, she was put in a hogshead barrel and put on a merchant ship for Amsterdam, and she made it to her sister's. Um, She did marry another Huguenot refugee, Abraham Michaud. And when the King of England offered to send Huguenot refugees to colonize Virginia, um, Abraham, Susanna, and their children came to America and helped settle Virginia. And their daughter, Anne, married a Richard Woodson and... Their daughter, Elizabeth Woodson, married Nathaniel Venable, uh, who was known for his service during the Revolutionary War. And I am a direct descendant from them. So, this is my my Reformation connection and why I know her story. That's awesome. That's really cool. Have you, um, are there any stories that were passed down or did you learn a lot through uh, studying? That story was one that was passed down um, that I knew. Uh, the rest of it we, we learned from doing genealogy with my mom and my grandmother. That's really cool. We're, we're talking about some different women sometimes um, a little later in history than, than, um, than right during the Reformation. The next one we're going to talk about Selena Hastings. And um, this was actually in the 1700s, where the part of her life we're going to talk about. So, she married at 21 years old to Theophilus Hastings. I always love these long names. Theophilus Hastings, ninth Earl of Huntington. (laughs) So, and one of the things about her is she loved her husband very much. There's letters and you can learn that she loved her husband and her children. And she had seven children born in 10 years. That's a lot of of children, of children in 10 years. Um, well, my, my great grandmother had nine children in 10 years and it was, it was hard on her body and Selena had health problems and, you know, sometimes um, having that many babies close together can be, can wear you out. So she spent time at something called the thermal springs of bath and she didn't, really like the decadence of the place and she missed her family when she was there and you know desired to go home and she had dissatisfaction with herself um she didn't find she wasn't finding what she wanted in in christianity and she like a lot of these women you know trying to to do the things that were right when it, you know, she um, attended church and did good works, and but she didn't understand the true gospel. She she tried very hard to live a godly life, and these so many of these stories have so many parallels with these women 
you know, just trying to do the right thing so that they would, if I do enough good works, I'm going to, you know, feel secure in my faith. But with the faith and works theology, there isn't enough good works to feel secure in your faith. Um, in 1739, it was her sister-in-law, Margaret, that shared with her how she finally found peace and assurance by believing the gospel, that Christ had won the battle she had tried so hard to fight. It's just, that's, that's the true good news, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and her sister-in-law directed her to some young pastors known by the disparaging name of Methodist. And uh, we'll see that she she grew under their preaching. I it would be interesting to learn more about her since um, so she, she became good friends with John and Charles Wesley. And one of the things that um, that I don't know if it's a true story. You know, there's lots of these stories that there's a story mm -hmm. out there that that John Wesley I think he had read Luther's commentary in Galatians. And he said something like, Lutherans are strong in the gospel, but weak on sanctification. Because of course, John Wesley believed in kind of a, a um, entire sanctification. Well, that's what it was called when I went to Wesleyan Perfection. Uh, school. Yeah. It appears that she didn't, that, that's where she parted ways with him. Right. Because I think if you were to hear the true gospel and then you're taught some Wesleyan perfectionism, You'd be like, wait, something is is wrong here. Especially if you came out of a wrong gospel and apologize for my dog barking. Like I said, she did diverge from Wesley over um, the perfectionism, and she felt like it would um, would undermine the assurance that she'd found in salvation by faith alone. And she developed closer ties with George Whitfield, who um, had also. Um, been part of the Methodist movement with Wesley. Uh, she made Whitfield her chaplain uh, in 1748. And if you know much about uh, the Reformation and the subsequent movements in, in England, uh, the Church of England uh, didn't want the dissenters uh, pre preaching or finding and uh, getting licenses to preach. And uh, she found a creative way around the legislation. So she would call ministers to preach at her private chapels and that was allowed. And then she enlarged her chapels to be big enough to invite lots of people to come so that like even thousands to be able to attend. And so apparently uh, she ev eventually had 64 chapels registered under her name, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. And the other issue for, uh, the preachers who are not part of the Church of England, the dissenters, is that they uh, couldn't get into the colleges and seminaries, and so they didn't have, they weren't being well educated. So she opened her own school as well. That's amazing. This Isn't woman, it? she, it, it just, it really is. So um, another one we're going to talk about, we're going to go back a little bit in history now, and uh, Catherine Willoughby. And there, I'm only going to talk a little bit about her story, but she was really an amazing woman. Again, I'll link in the episode notes. You can read more about her. Um, this is one of those that got married very, very young at 14 years old, and her husband was 35 years older than her. So very different time. And, but this, her husband was very wealthy, which then in turn made her one of the wealthiest women in England. And um, her husband, Charles, had been married, married to Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's sister. So a lot of connections in here. They had two sons, Henry and Charles, and she became influenced by Protestant ideas. Her husband died and left her a lot of wealth. So, of course, he was much, much older than her. So that happens sometimes. And there was a... Um, a woman named Catherine Parr, and she had a Lamentation of a Sinner, which was a very controversial book. But Catherine financed um, this publication, and then she also promoted the distribution of Bibles. So, you know, during this time, you know, prior to the Reformation, people didn't necessarily have Bibles, and especially Bibles in their home, but she promoted this. 
So her sons, and I'm not sure how young they were, but um, they were teenagers, I think, and not very old teenagers when they went, when they studied at St. John's College, Cambridge under Martin Bucer. So we talked about Martin Bucer earlier. And when Martin Bucer became ill, Catherine took care of him. And then what this is just so, so, so heartbreaking. When when her sons were 14 and 15 years old, they died within hours of each other. And um, what I found, it was from something called sweating sickness. I don't I don't know if you know anything about that, Rachel. I'm I'm not exactly sure was, what that was. Um it was very common at the time. It was it's like a it was a, a pretty regular epidemic. And it would be common, especially during the summer and in the cities. So they're not sure what it was that caused it, but um, it would, the, a lot of the reason that the wealthy would leave the cities, um, the king would leave during the summer was to try to avoid the illnesses that were going around, but particularly sweating sickness. It shows up a lot in, um, in Tudor discussions. Yeah, it's a, if you think about how many different viruses and illnesses that, I mean, people during that time experience a lot more death than we do just mm-hmm. because of, you know, medical practices and understanding germs better and overcrowding you know, things like that. Oh, yeah, that's poor, true too. Poor ventilation, poor um, sanitation. Um, yeah. when, when your waste is poured out in the yep. streets, in the cities, it's just... And in the waterways, it's just going to be bad. Um, the The book that she that Catherine Willoughby helped promote, uh, the or published, Catherine Parr's Lamentation of a Sinner. Catherine Parr is um, was Henry the Eighth's uh, surviving widow. Um, she's the last wife, and so she was uh, among the Protestants and was uh, influential in. Uh, in many things, but partly also in in protecting and mending the relationship between Henry VIII and um, uh, Elizabeth, who becomes Queen Elizabeth. So there's a lot in there of the the ways in which these women were involved in in the Protestant movement in the church. And I, I would encourage reading what I put in episode notes because there's a lot more than um, mm-hmm. that. Because she went through all sorts of stuff, and it's kind of amazing to read about. Um, are some quotes from her from a letter: "Sickness, adversities, persecution, or what else in this world can happen? I think it's I think it's supposed to be to, to us that they be sent of God for our profit, and that nothing can happen amiss to His elect children." Um, She did get married again. She had two more children. And like I said, definitely read what I link in the episode notes because there was a whole um, situation where she escaped with her husband and and eventually came back. So it's it's pretty fascinating. But again, um, sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for getting the Bible out there in different publications. You know, another woman from the English Reformation um, I'd recommend uh, to read about is uh, Lady Jane Grey. Uh, She was queen for a few days and before Elizabeth. And it's, uh, her life is very interesting. Her her story is interesting and her stand for the gospel is given everything, the pressure that she was under is really impressive. There really is so many, so mm-hmm. many women. So the last one we're going to talk about is Ursula von Munsterberg. Again, not sure. <laughs> she was the the granddaughter of King George of Hodebrady of Bohemia. And she was the cousin of Duke George of Saxony. She was born around 1491. So um, put together what happened in the Reformation and which which years kind of get an idea of how old she was again. She was very young. Oh, well, she, she was an orphan and then she ended up moving into the convent and I'm not even sure what year that, that was. Um, so when she got a little older, she moved in. 
yeah, into the convent and she didn't like it. She had a very difficult time. Um, but eventually there was a, uh, a chaplain that was assigned there that had uh, reformist ideas or the ideas coming out of the Reformation. So it'd be interesting to find out a little bit more in, in what year that was thinking of mm-hmm. the different events in the Reformation. So there was somebody that was accused, if I understand the story correctly, were accused of sending Luther's works into the convent. And through a situation, Ursula is the one that ended up taking the blame. And like was happening during that time in so many convents, Luther's works were coming in. And a lot of these nuns um, ended up becoming Lutheran and including Ursula. And you'd like an earlier story that we talked about, there was a whole long situation. I'll link it in episode notes so you can read more about it. But they, Ursula and two other nuns escaped to Wittenberg and they were welcomed by pastors under Luther, but there was a whole situation where the convent wanted them to be returned. But returning them could have been, you know, they could have been tortured and punished, imprisoned, all different sorts of things. But she wrote an apology, a defense, and in it, she put a whole bunch of verses, and one of them being the just shall live by faith. You know, that was a very important one to Luther in understanding the gospel. She she finally understood the gospel instead of a, a faith of faith and works. And then her her letter became very influential. Um, and Luther even wrote the afterward. So um I th- I don't know how many of these works are available out there, but I think it would be fun to available in English. I know some, some of the things that we learn, Mm -hmm. some of those things aren't available in English. Um, I even know somebody that has translated some of Melanchthon's works into English that weren't translated into English before. So even today, some of these works are still being translated in English. And I'm guessing that some of the works by women are not the priority over to translate over, um, Mm -hmm some of the ones by men. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, could very well be. So I, I think I would encourage people to go and, and learn some more about these women. Uh, I'm still going through some of the resources that we used this week, but along with lots and lots of uh, links to stories about these women that we're putting in the episode notes for each one of these women, we also have uh, two books that we're going to put in, and it's a good time of year to kind of learn about some of these women and what they went through for the sake of the gospel, and even reading about how some of them were struggling so much with assurance. I think Rachel mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that we've heard from so many women that are in that place. They're struggling with assurance because of things, their background, things that they were taught but I think for somebody maybe struggling with that, reading some of these stories about these women who went through the same thing, struggling with assurance and and finally understanding and grasping the true gospel of justification by faith alone. <laughs> 